0: Today, I have the pleasure of teaching on Psalm 139, an old favorite of mine, and I hope it will be one of yours too. And when you read it, I hope today's teaching will help you to pray like the writer of Psalm 139 prayed to his father and ours. Please join me in prayer. Father, thank you for creating each one of us, for sustaining us, and for holding us in the hollow of your hand. Please help me as I preach, and please open our eyes to understand wonderful things in your law, amen. Psalm 139 to the choir master. A Psalm of David. O Lord, You hem me in, behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there For darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts and knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies, take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This psalm is a good psalm for our daily scripture reading during Lent. Lent is a 40-day period of time, not including Sundays. The season of Lent began this past Wednesday and ends on the Thursday before Good Friday, before Easter Sunday. In Lent, we prepare ourselves for the celebration of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. It is a time of quieting ourselves turning our attention to God, a time of generous giving and of regular fasting from food and unnecessities. All of us should observe Lent in the way that we can, and this is a Lenten psalm. My hope and goal in teaching on Psalm 139 is to help us to use this psalm as part of our normal prayer life and especially in the season of Lent. What I imagine that may look like is you waking up in the morning tomorrow and reading Psalm 139, perhaps making this a part of your morning routine during some of the 40 days of Lent. And then, at the close of the day, perhaps as part of your evening or bedtime routine, reading Psalm 51, another Psalm of David that pairs with this one, and fits with today's sermon. Perhaps you will place the provided printed copy of each Psalm at your bedside or on your dining room table, taped to your bathroom wall or on the dashboard of your car to read before turning your engine on and going to work or coming home from work. My hope is for us to learn some or all of these verses by heart so that these verses become a natural part of how we pray. We can teach our children and the people we're making into disciples of Christ to also pray these psalms. Therefore, it would seem best that we hear a second reading of this psalm before we hear any comments on it. As Sam Chen-Sing Poon comes forward now to read it, please give your attention to the reading of God's word.
1: O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search on my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hand me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Oh, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Oh, how precious are your thoughts, O God, how vast is the sum of them, if I count them they are more than the sand, if I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you will slay the wicked, O God, O man of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? Oh, I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. And search me, O Lord, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there's any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Amen. Okay,
0: this psalm raises some questions. Why is the psalmist so comfortable and happy with the knowledge that God sees everything he does? Did David write this psalm before or after his sin with Bathsheba? Could he have written this psalm even after making some of his biggest mistakes in life? And why is the strong sense that God has always been paying really close attention to him and is always with him and he can never get away from him so fascinating and such a dearly treasured thought? When faced with the reality of my thoughts being known and my secret choices being fully seen by God, how do I feel about that? Am I scared of being punished? Scared of being caught? Scared of being abandoned? Scared of being exposed and made ashamed? Or does it feel like God is so far away from me that it's hard to even relate with much of this psalm? Let's look at James chapter 4, verse 8. Draw near to God. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Knowing that God sees your heart and knows your secret thoughts and is with you at all times of the day, should give us a little bit of fear and a tremendous, wonderful comfort all at the same time. And we were meant to never be alone, to live our whole lives just like David did in the presence of God. Let me say that it's very easy to misunderstand this psalm. We can read this and just really not get it. This psalm raises some questions. Let's start towards the end of the psalm and work our way back, asking questions and finding answers. We're going to ask why David changes the subject at the end of the psalm and starts talking about how much he hates the ways of violent people. And then, aren't we supposed to love our enemies and pray for those who mistreat us? Aren't we? We're going to ask why it doesn't have to be frightening that God knows all my thoughts. We're going to ask if it's a good thing or a bad thing that we literally can't get away from God and that he is paying very close attention to us. And The key is, what was David thinking about God when he wrote this psalm? David had a relationship with God. God is a father to him. God is a father to him. And that's the key to understanding this whole psalm. Let's look at Psalm 139, verse 19. "'Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! O men of blood, depart from me! They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies.' Going to verse 19, we see that David went from a delightful meditation on God's nearness to, in what at first seems like a big jump, some very serious statements about violent people and about people who hate God. Why is he suddenly changing the subject? It's like he's trying to sing a psalm about God's nearness, but he's really thinking about something else in the back of his mind, like he's kind of anxious about this other thing, and he changes the subject suddenly. Have you ever done that in prayer? Of course you have. It's how the human mind works. Often we have another thought in the back of our mind, that nagging thought that we can't quite get away from. And in prayer, we pour out our deepest, most intimate thoughts to God. David is being comforted by sensing the presence of God. But like in Psalm 63 that we read a few weeks ago, we find out towards the end of this psalm that the whole time he was praising, he was in a place of distress and deep longing. And in this psalm, David's not just in a little trouble. He's in real danger. Lots of people wanted to kill him. Men of blood, violent men. He was faced with and related to and chased around by people who wanted to kill him from the time of his youth into his late adulthood. Mm -hmm. The reality of being at risk for harm was almost always a part of his daily life. But the reality of God's presence and protection is greater than that. Even though he couldn't get entirely away from his enemies, even though he walked through the valley of the shadow of death, Our Father was with him. God prepared a table for him right there in the presence of his enemies and kept his enemies at bay. And when his worship was seemingly interrupted by these nagging thoughts about the people who wanted to kill him, there in the presence of God, he had a word of knowledge from the Holy Spirit. You see, David was a charismatic He was baptized in the Holy Spirit. He had a word of knowledge. In the presence of God, he discerned their end. They were going to go down into the dust of the earth. God's justice is going to win. So, David vows to have nothing to do with vengeance or with their evil, murderous ways. A great irony of David's life is that he was wronged by so many people from his childhood to his old age, and yet, he made some mistakes, but he had a reputation for not taking vengeance. He knew deeply that God will repay those who harm him. God will repay the wicked. And knowing this, David held his peace. In Psalm 139, we meditate on the wonderful comfort, the wonderful comfort, the wonderful comfort, that God knows my distress and my need and that he has set a day of judgment when he will put an end to evil once and for all as in the words of Job. Job chapter 19, verses 25 and 29. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last, he will stand upon the earth. Mm -hmm. Verse 29. You may know there is a judgment. You see, God's nearness, God's nearness to us brings uh, to us his children, brings mercy. But God's nearness to the wicked brings judgment. Mm -hmm. This psalm is all about what happens when God draws near to us and hears our cries for help and comforts us with his steadfast love. Now, David was frequently rejected, criticized, slandered, and harassed. Many wanted him dead. Having suffered much harm at the hands of others, he still did not take vengeance with his own hand. Of Saul, who came after David to kill him, David said, do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him or his day will come to die or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. The ultimate reality in David's life was the love of our Father in heaven. Complete confidence that God does love him, and that God will make all wrongs right. Seeing his sin, God washes it all away. Seeing those who were doing him wrong, God brings justice to them when their day comes. It's like at the end of the last Lord of the Rings movie, or if you read the book, the last book. It's like when Sam and Frodo are, I mean, they're, they're like on a rock on the side of a mountain that is covered with flowing lava, and the lava is going all around them, and the heat is starting to hurt, and there's absolutely no hope of seeing the sun again. This is their last day and their final hour. And in what may be their finest hour, the one says to the other, um, Totally just lost my train of thought. What was the thing that Sam said to Frodo? Oh, come on. Do you remember the... T- oh, man. Nuts. Well, okay. Well, there's an illustration that landed flat, and you'll have to go read that yourself. But it's really good. And it's a, it's a, it's a statement of, like, intense hope. I, for some reason, I just can't think of it now. That's the dementia setting in. Welcome to Life Over 40. <laughs> um, but he's he's filled with hope. And we'll move on. Elijah knows it. knows it. Uh, actually, Frodo says to Sam, I'm glad that you're here with me. Here at the end of all things. Frodo says to Sam, I'm glad that you're here with me, here at the end of all things. And there's another thing that he says, too, that I'm trying to think of that I can't remember. <laughs> all right. Okay, back to the Bible. Now let's work our way back to the beginning. Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, You know it all together. You hem me in, behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Why is God's hand laid upon him? Is it for some kind of like punishment or disciplinary measure? This is a hand of guidance. It's the gentle hand of a father who without a word rests his hand upon David to guide him in the way he should go. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Verses one through six about God's all seeing, all his complete knowledge, is like overwhelming to David. Not like with a sense of dread, like oh my gosh, you saw that. It's, it's with a sense of deep comfort as it says in Exodus, I think, chapter 2, when the Israelites are in great suffering in their slavery in Egypt, and it just simply says, God saw and God knew. Verses 7 through 12 are about God's presence. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven you are there, if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Sheol means the grave or the place of the dead. It's just a Hebrew word that they didn't translate. And even here in this psalm, the hope of life after death is tucked into this narrative of God's presence. God is present both here and in the beyond. And David is with him here and will be with him there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. What on earth are the wings of the morning? All right, what direction is north? We're getting to that way, and that way, but it just changed to that way. It takes a minute for the compass needle to come around if you've ever tried to navigate with one. Don't hold it close to your phone either. It'll mess it up. So that way is north. So that way is east. So if we had come hours before church, we would have seen those windows uh, first darkened, light up with the first rays of morning. David says, if I take the wings of the morning, can you just... See the sunlight spreading as the sun begins to rise in the east, spreading across the sky and lighting up the clouds golden. And then as the sun rises, running its course all the way to the other end of the heavens and setting in the, and setting in the evening, well, that's where the psalm stops, to, stops making sense and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. The sea isn't always in the west, but where David lived... It always was. Directly to the west was the Mediterranean Sea. So if you look to the west, if you could get past the mountains, uh, he would see a sea that they used to call the Great Sea, the Mediterranean. And it stretched so far to the west that in the book of Acts, uh, Paul and his companions spend like, uh, like a couple of weeks sailing on it without seeing any land. And if he had known this, Beyond that is the entire Atlantic Ocean. This verse is what's called a merism. It says, from east to west, you're you're there and you're there. We know the earth is spherical, and being spherical east and west is, in that sense, endless. Uh, But even if you live in your geographic location with the knowledge that the ancients had, probably being entirely unaware of the Uh, shape of the earth. Uh, East is limitlessly that way and west the direction of the sea is limitlessly that way. From the rising of the morning to the uttermost parts of the sea even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. There's no place too high and there's no place so low that you can go that God will not be with you and will bring you back and lead you in the paths of righteousness. And if you have been to the low place or if you have been far from God, like Jonah did when he fled across the sea on his way, I think, to Spain from Modern-day Israel, that's a long voyage, trying to get away from the presence of God by going all the way as far as he could according to the map that he knew. Even there, God's hand found him and brought him back. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light around me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. For the night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Every once in a while, if you have little kids, they will say to you, I guarantee it, Daddy, or Mommy, I'm afraid of the dark, or I'm afraid, and it usually means it's dark. And you can read them this psalm. When you're out in the wilderness, as David often was running for his life, the dark is a whole different kind of dark than in a place where there are people, homes, and lights or lamps that may be on all night or readily available should you strike a match and light one or however they kindled fire back then. When you're out in the wilderness, darkness is truly dark. Imagine David being in the cave He was often hiding in caves and holes, mountain cliffs, where he took refuge from those trying to kill him. It is dreadfully dark in a cave. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. The next verses, 13 through 18, are about God's love. We've moved from God's knowledge to his presence He could be out there and know everything, but know he's right here, knows everything and is with us. Know what's more, he loves us completely and outside and above time, his love never changes. Therefore, nothing we do changes God's love for us. Amen? Amen. And his care for all the details. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together In my mother's womb, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. That's a metaphor for inside his mom's belly. Your eyes saw my unformed substance or saw me when I was as yet unformed. If you have studied biochemistry or biology, uh, medicine, neuroscience, nursing, uh, anatomy and physiology, uh, that's probably at least half of the people in here, uh, even beyond high school level, um, then you are very blessed because you have had the pleasure of understanding some of the intricacies of the human body. And perhaps you've studied, if you've ever looked at a picture of the skull of a baby, and you look at where the, you have multiple bones in your skull, it's not all one. When you're born, there's actually a gap in between them filled with uh, cartilage. And then and then they really are knit together. There are little squiggly lines where as the bones grow and, um, and, and the baby's head gets bigger, the, they fit together like a puzzle piece. So the different bones of your skull are kind of cool to study, and they're really interesting to see. They really are knit and fitted together. But what's more, you didn't just see me before anybody else did. You saw my tomorrow before any of us Ever got there. You saw my yesterday, my today, and you see forever. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me when, as yet, there was none of them. God created you as a person. You did not evolve in a godless, uh, uh, succession of ages and ages from a primordial ooze. God made you. How precious to me are your thoughts, O oh God. Can you hear how he's responding to God's tenderness and God's care and God's, God's delight in all of the details? How precious to me are your thoughts, O oh God. There's a lot of them. <laughs> How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they're more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. If we didn't know the Father that David knows in this psalm, we might read this psalm about God's infinite knowledge and and. Uh, and impossible to evade presence, and we might feel creepy or scared, but we are to feel deeply comforted. How we read this psalm depends on who God is and on why he's watching over us so closely, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. What's God going to do with all the data he's collecting about us? What are his plans Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. These are the words of promise to God's people when they had suffered the ultimate disaster and were exiled away from the land. Likewise, David wrote many of the Psalms from the wilderness when he had lost everything but his own life, everything except the promises of God and the presence of God and the reality of belonging to a loving Father. Our Father's love is ultimate reality. The hope that God will deliver us is always with us, Why is God watching over us so closely? As he said to Abraham, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So what kind of father is this? Matthew 6, 4. Your father who sees in secret will... Reward you. He carefully keeps count of your good deeds to reward you, but he forgets all your sins. He removes them as far as the east is from the west. That's what kind of father he is. Second Chronicles sixteen nine, The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth. Why? To find you, to get you, to punish you in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. He's watching you so that he can give you strength when you need it. Amen. Psalm 121.8, The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time and forever. Psalm 139, You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. His hand is upon you, not for punishment, but to guide you in what is good. This psalm has basically two main points. Number one, God is Redeemer. He's not trying to find something wrong with you, but looking to build you up, to help you. Why? Because that's what a father does. And unlike our earthly fathers, who only in some ways represent God well, God is the ultimate Father. And as his children, we all have access to the same Father. We can read about God's all-seeing omniscience and his ever-present omnipresence, but until we know what his intentions are, and who he is, until we have intimately known his steadfast love, in the very hour we have revealed to him our deepest sin and suffering. His omniscience and omnipresence mean little to us, but when you know God, you know this. God is for us and not against us. God will never leave us nor forsake us. God would die for us even if we hated him. Jesus became a man to live for our righteousness and to die for our sin. Romans 5.8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, he didn't wait until we had faith, drew near to him, repented of sin, trusted to him, did a little penance. He came to us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He sees both our future and our past, and his love for us is entirely complete and entirely effective. He takes out the heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh for his children. He gives a new heart and puts a new spirit within us. He is making all things new. This God in this psalm comes near to David as a redeemer. The second point found in the last verses when David seemingly changes the subject is, do not join in with those who do evil. Part of the message of the book of Job, a book of the Bible that you will need to understand intimately in order to lead a victorious Christian life as you endure suffering and as we share in one another's sufferings, Part of the message of the book of Job is to fear the Lord and shun evil. Mm -hmm. To love what God loves and to hate what God hates is a Christian virtue, as we see in this psalm. Some of us need more hatred of what God hates. This psalm is instructive. We can learn something from it. It by no means says not to associate with the evildoers or worldly people of this world. In that case, you would have to leave the world, 1 Corinthians 5. But in this psalm, David, in faith, is resolving not to take part in their ways, resolving not to take vengeance on those who are trying to kill him, and to leave room for God's wrath. Sometimes, We see evil, and we respond to evil with evil. This is not the way of the Lord. God is judge. For God will bring every deed into judgment, with every secret thing, whether good or evil. In this psalm, David is resolving not to participate in evil, and in faith, he is affirming that he will not participate in evil even though it is all around him. And he does not have to take vengeance because he knows that God will. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies, take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. David sees God's love and becomes completely vulnerable before him, inviting his father to point out anything in him that gives him grief, that offends him. Did you know that we can give God grief? I think most of us know that. Try me and know my thoughts. This level of vulnerability is only possible when you are utterly confident that God will accept you as you are. But if you have never been completely open and vulnerable with God, you may not yet have experienced the level of acceptance that all humans crave. And indeed, you were created to receive from God our Father. Adam and Eve had it, and sinned they were baptized in shame, they hid from the presence of God, and they tried to cover their shame. But the thing about fig leaves is that they wilt what they needed was a new covering, one that was outside of themselves, and there, in the garden, God provided covering for their shame. They hid themselves, the Father God came to them and clothe them Genesis 3:21 The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them You see our Father never intended for them to remain ashamed God came down he didn't chew them out he didn't criticize them he didn't wait until they repented he came to them with kindness and called to them Genesis 3.8, Adam recognized the sound of his voice and said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Adam tried his best to cover up and look as good as he could. But God sees all. Then there was blame. There were excuses. Well, the woman you gave me. But God knows the heart, and it's our heart he's after. Adam and Eve quickly came to know that though they had sinned, made excuses for it, blamed, and hid themselves from God, in the garden, we basically see the opposite of the pattern of Psalm, in Psalm 139 of David's openness with God and his sense of safety and even intimacy in God's presence. Adam and Eve quickly came to found out, find out, like we do every time, that we are safe in God's presence. David was a sinful man, yet he found safety in God's presence because he knew the heart of God. He knew from reading Genesis and from personal experience that our sins and suffering do not repel God. Rather, they draw out his deepest heart of compassion and longing to bring us back into sweet and loving fellowship with him. And in a quadrillion echoes of his amazing grace, by this he opens the way for us to have fellowship with all the saints in the family of God, who sometimes are loving like Christ and sometimes look more like Adam and Eve when we lay blame on others for our own sin. Because God is holy and calls us out of darkness into light, he sometimes will send another person to point out something you don't want to see. Uh, Skipping down 2 Samuel 12, 13. Um, God sent the prophet uh, Nathan after David had sinned against the Lord in the matter of Uriah the Hittite and Bathsheba. And David did not confess his sin until God sent the prophet who came and said to him, You are the man. David then said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Do you see how in this passage, even though God knew David would sin and had planned in advance to put away his sin, it came about through a confrontation by a fellow saint? We all need that sometimes. In order to return to God, we all drift from God and we need one another in this way. But do not delight in being the one to point out another's sin to them. Sometimes we're too convicted about other people's sins. One of the greatest insights God can ever give you is I do that too. God will send people to confront you about your sin. And, like David, you need that. And he is only doing that for your redemption. Hear the heart of the Father. It's so that you can stop sinning and enjoy forgiveness and fellowship when good and pleasant unity is restored. But God is the Father of mercy and the God of all compassion. And we don't have time now to go into the story in John chapter 8 of the woman who was caught in adultery. Um, but what happened when, when she was dragged, uh, hopefully fully clothed, but, you know, we wonder, I mean, probably openly ashamed in every way. And he, she was dragged in front of Jesus, and the Pharisees tried to trick him, saying, you know, the Bible says, uh, you know, this woman should be stoned to death for her sin. What do you say? I'm trying to get him to contradict the word of God. And he stoops down and he begins to write on the ground. And after everybody leaves her alone, he asks, Woman, where have all your accusers gone? You see, the heart of our father is to drive away our accusers, to silence the accuser, the foe, and the avenger, And the tender mercy of God is seen most clearly at the cross. For at the cross, where Christ was crucified for sinners who knew him not, how could we? We weren't even born yet. But his mercy came before in the timeline of humanity we'd even have a chance to sin. His mercy was already finished. As he said, it is finished. And so, the tender mercy of our God is made visible at the cross of Christ. There we see God's heart of mercy. So let's imitate our Father. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We are about to come to the table of the Lord, if we could have... uh, Three communion servers come up, please. Here, in his presence, we have fellowship with one another if we confess our sins before him. We will feast on small pieces of bread and small cups of wine around a small table. These are a small representation of the perfect table of the Lord in heaven. And as we are, even now, seated with the Lord at his table in heavenly places. At the head of the table sits the Father of mercies and the God of all compassion. He sees all. He is with us all the time. And he receives all who trust in him to wash away our sin, both our obvious sin and our secret sin. Please come now to be served at the table of the Lord.